Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. He's very sickly today. Dagan, <laughs> how are you today, my friend? Talk to me. You should have saw me four or five days ago. Oof, I was just telling you before we before we pressed record. Ooh, it's been a doozy this week. Yeah, but but not... See, this is... Didn't we just talk about this a few a couple months ago on the show that now when people get sick, everyone's going to think they have COVID for probably the next 20 years. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. so when you got sick, did you, did you think you had COVID finally? You had the Omicron? Or I thought it crossed my mind. But you know what kind of comforted me through the whole thing? I started to, you know, it began like the flu usually does. We could all relate to this, right? It's like all of a sudden that dark cloud right. casts its pall and you're like, all right, you feel a little achy, feel a little out of it, maybe a little stuffy. The cold symptoms start to come on. But it's not an unusual feeling. We've all gone through that. Maybe we go through it every other year, whatever it is. And then, so that was Monday during my, I got through the work day, laid on my couch after work in the office here. And then Helene came in at some point, you know, I was kind of, I was cold. I couldn't get warm, which is not like me at all. I'm usually hot, obviously, right? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Sure. And she came in and bring the her new laser thermometer, which is like her new go-to prop, and just points it at my forehead. She's like, you have a 103-degree fever. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I, I feel absolutely awful. Now, I don't think I've had a fever that high since I was a kid, and I felt legit out of it. Took an Advil or two, broke the fever by the morning, and then every day 
since then, you could kind of check a symptom off the list, you know, where I'm not achy, I still feel cold. And the next day I don't feel cold anymore, but I'm really stuffed up and congested in my head. Next day I might be just be down to a cough. So thank God it's gone a little bit, you know, it's gone in the right direction. I still have a little bit of a cold. Um, still might be a little raspy. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're you welcome. Sound, you're yeah, welcome you sound, for that. You sound like a like an old crooner. <laughs> you know, like like an old crooner getting ready to But do I you have coffee. to. Now you have to. You can't just have the flu. You have to take the at home covid tests and all that kind of thing so i think i took two over the course of the first two days because i mean you just don't want if you have covid what are you going to do you're just going to ride it out like it's any other thing but you don't want to give it to the kids you don't want to give it to the wifey well so well you'll find this funny because i I don't think you're on this thread i don't know why you would be there's a thread an extensive thread okay that i named because eventually it was going around all the time i rename all the threads that i'm on which i just so i can keep track of them i renamed this one virginia family so it's like everyone that lives down here and we okay. basically pump pump it when we're doing like a barbecue or okay some such. Yeah, yeah but you'll appreciate this and our okay. sister Allie listens to the show i don't know if she listens to every episode but she um was on the thread and proclaimed that she her boyfriend jonathan and her daughter ayla have covid but then two hours later so she couldn't come to our barbecue that we're doing for mother's day but then tomorrow right but then the she texted back a couple hours later saying she totally misread the tests and in fact none of them have covid so she will indeed be be there but what i want what i also wanted to say was i was thinking of helene coming in with the thermometer at least she wasn't coming in with the 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 cloth you know this this thing in movies always really gets me annoyed you know the especially in old like victorian edwardian stuff thing where they they sit bedside like in downton abbey and they're just stabbing your head with the 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 (laughs) wet cloth i'm like what is that who I've no one's ever done that to me in my entire life. The cloth. Like like I I've had like a a towel on my head a couple of times. Yeah, like, cold like, compress. Right, exactly. Right. But the, like the the very, you know, like he's sweating, he's dying of some some exotic disease, and they're just gently rubbing his head with a cloth and like, you know, putting it in like a little basin. That yeah. is awesome. Why? Why do they Why do that? that thing? And you know, that reminds me also of that very cartoony sort of ice pack that they used to put on your head like the cloth right. ice pack right there's just a lot of weird like movie things I, I often think of the woman or the man it's usually a woman but a man with the grocery bag it's got like the thing of celery in it the the paper towel like just things sticking out of the bag like the same three items sticking out of the bag to show you like this is a very well-rounded the telltale right. yeah yeah exactly well thank god she didn't come in with the rectal thermometer oh that my god be... like mom used to come in oh let's not even talk should we talk about that I mean, mom used to, mom used to straight up take our temperature through our ass. I don't know why she insisted on doing that. It's supposed to be the most accurate. That's what they say. I believe that's what they say. But but, back then maybe, or whatever. But let me say this. If Dr. LaPera wasn't interested in measuring my temperature out of my ass, why are you doing it? Why do you have to take it one step further than the pediatrician? I know. (laughs) The trained medical, medical professional. She goes in and she's like, yeah, Dr. Dr. LaPera, you know, he's got, a, he's running 102 fever. I did the anal thermometer. He's like, that's not really necessary. <laughs> Plus he's 15. Right. Exactly. Like, why, <laughs> why are you still doing this to him? <laughs> he's barely old enough still to come to the pediatrician. <laughs> you know, people, like people were talking about like, oh, you know, having to do the, I never did it, but the, the uncomfortable swab test for COVID. Oh man. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, at least your mom wasn't shoving a glass thermometer up your ass when you were you know a child 
So thank God that's gone the way of the dodo, man. Now you could just point that little laser sight, little Tom Clancy Rainbow Six at your, at your temple. <laughs> yeah, I just see. It's not that it was uncomfortable for me so much as like, what are you doing? You know, like you're doing this. Like I, I'm not doing that. We're gonna break the cycle. Did we talk about this or did I talk about this recently with Helene? Because it was a whole, I think you probably had a similar experience, Kyle. Let me know. But it was like a whole ritual where we were actually allowed in the living room, which was like the, the it's very Italian furniture with the plastic covering room that every Italian family grew up with in the 70s and 80s. Didn't have the plastic covers. Ours didn't have the plastic covers. But, but you weren't allowed. Short. We weren't allowed in there. <laughs> no, we were allowed in there like when company came on a holiday. But for some reason, that's where we laid down to get the temperature taken. So it was like we were allowed in that room for that. Like, I don't know whether that was supposed to be a comforting thing. I don't know what it was. <laughs> but it was this whole very odd ritual where the living room was involved. You know, the taboo room was involved. The whole thing. It was like. I remember being very uncomfortable with taking the temperature under my tongue as well, though. Like if you went to the nurse's office in elementary school, you had to hold it under there. It seemed like, why isn't this thing going like for 10 minutes? Like, do I right. really have to hold this under my tongue for 10 minutes and I can't touch it with my hands? So I don't know which was better. Well, I, th I think that was the preferential. Uh, At least they weren't doing we that could. to you at the nurse's office. There's something wrong with that nurse's office that they were doing that. You know, maybe mom, maybe mom brought you... Maybe mom brought you into the, uh, into the, the living room to kind of up the stakes a little bit, you know, like maybe that maybe we're going to have some, some anal secretion here and we might get it on the white rug. It oh makes it a little God. more exciting. <laughs> I was not, well, you know what? I have expected. She's like up in the stakes. She's like, oh my God, you know, Jerry's really not going to like it. If they you can't do this here. Yeah. So we really got to be careful over here. But I, we, like I said, we're going to break the cycle. Like, you know, time immemorial, one of our favorite terms. Moriarty's have been measuring each other's temperatures with mercury glass thermometers for hundreds of years. And we broke the cycle. I don't think Dana and did, did it with her children. So I think we have safely broken the cycle. I could say that, yeah. you know, it's which is great. Too, we learned. It's just too weird for me. It's like. Even if we lived 50, let's say we lived in the Mad Men era, like the 50s, yeah. 60s, and I had a child and they were like, the child has a, you know, that's the way we do it. I'm like, I'm, I think we're just going to guess. He feels about 102. Like, we're, we'll just figure it out from there. He has a fever. I don't know what you, well, we don't need the exact number, do we? I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not doing this. No, I'd just be life. afraid I was going to mess it up. I'm not surgical enough for that. Let's, let's keep it simple. Let's just do the mouth thermometer. Was the mouth, th also, was the oral thermometer, was it expensive or something? I, have, I remember when they started coming out in the 90s, like, do you remember, like, the, with the button on them, and they would beep, and you would put sure. it in your mouth? Like, digital, that was, yeah. like, a big deal. Yes. I do remember that. I, re I, I remember that being a thing. But I don't know. I, don't, I feel like, as, as we've remarked so many times on this show, it seems like so many things our parents acted like were a big deal or hard weren't, in fact, a big deal or hard, and it was either done out of self-pity or just to fuck with us right and i don't I know which that's is which. True. it's the same thing that's what we were talking about with paper towels why am i still scarred by that Forever you know, scarred. why did dad have 10 rolls of 1978 wall 
produce bags that he still uses. Still there. To this day. He's down to seven bags now. Seven rolls. Those things were made with like asbestos. You know, like those pla- those bags. were. Those bags are older than probably all of us. I, I believe they are. Yeah. It's I'll like take it just, one step further, Kyle. Yeah. Was the, and let me play devil's advocate here. I'm not <laughs> saying it was. I'm, I'm honestly asking. Was the glass mercury rectal thermometer the same one that went in our mouth? <laughs> you know it Just was. Clean. clean. You know it I'm was. Saying, Mom yeah. cleaned it. Yeah, but you know it was. <laughs> you think dad had two thermometers? We're lucky we had one thermometer. I don't think, I really don't think so. Wow. Yeah. Well, a lot of, a lot of angst coming out on this show. A lot show of baggage. Today. Oh my god, dude! Not a I, I have so much bag. I'm like a I'm like a homeless woman with a shopping cart out there with <laughs> so much baggage. You know, like you, you ever see a? <laughs> this is just a joke. But you ever see a homeless person in a city like I used to see this in San Francisco, where they had so it was like they were crossing the fucking Continental Divide in the Oregon Trail. Like that's how big their their shopping cart or their their caravan was. Yeah, like where they had more shit than I do. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. It was like they were crossing over. They were going to, you know, Fort, whatever, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And they're going to begin, begin the journey. The piggybacked shopping carts, like pig, shopping cart tied to shopping carts. So you have a small train of shopping cart. Oh, I've, I think I've seen. I, I went to college in Philly in the mid-90s. This was before, before Philly was uh, cleaned up Giuliani style. So I got to see a lot of that for sure. Yeah, you saw a lot. Saw a lot. Well, you know, those people wagons. were packed. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to live on the street. You got the, and especially in the Northeast, you have to be prepared for summer, mm-hmm. winter. So seasonal, you know, considerations. I don't know. A lot of, a lot of covered wagons. Yes. Time in, in San Francisco, yes. Boston, LA. Anyway. Oh, sure. They, yeah. Let's, uh, and I've heard all those places are way worse than when I lived there. So that's we'll what see. they say. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Okay. Let's talk about the topic at hand. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man 2, the 2004 film. 
So what's interesting about this is we just did the original Spider-Man not too long ago, within the not last six long. months, I think, maybe even the last four months. And we were going to get to this eventually, but then the audience had voted for it. So, of course, you can listen to our show early and ad-free on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media, and you can vote on show topic ideas there and submit your ideas. We do that each and every month. This is one of those topics. We would have gotten to this one eventually, but I'm happy to do it sooner. So I was trying to rack my brain with this because I wasn't even sure going into it if I had seen it. And like, I know I had saw Spider-Man one in the movie. I, I had assumed I had seen this. Then I looked at the release date. So the, it came out in late June of 2004. I lived in San Francisco at the, that summer. So I think that I must have seen that when I was at IGN. I don't really remember when I was a, an intern there. But then in watching the movie, so I was like, okay, I must have seen it once. But then in watching the movie, I'm like, I've probably seen this a couple of times. Some of this stuff I really recognize, like the scene where Aunt May pulls her hand away from Peter. I just remember that scene. I'm like, I've seen that. And certain other ones, like the one where they're turning on the sun device and all this. So at some point, I had seen this film. And I'm curious what you remember about it. But before I ask you, I want to give a shout out to Landon Keith, who wrote in. And of course, you can write into us on Patreon as well. And he says, hope you are both doing well today. I wanted to share that this movie holds a lot of meaning and nostalgia for me. I was eight years old, going on nine when the movie came out on June 30th, 2004. The highly regarded uh, game had come out a couple of days prior, if I'm not mistaken. And I have this cherished memory of my dad taking me to our local Walmart on the 30th to buy the game on PS2 and then surprising me by saying we're seeing the movie in theaters later that night. As a lifelong Spider-Man fan, that day was one I'll always hold dearly and one of my favorite memories of bonding with my dad as he passed a couple of years ago. Needless to say, this is genuinely one of my favorite movies of all time. Hope you boys loved it during your rewatch and thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Landon, for writing in. Always love a nice memory like that. That's awesome. I, w- I wish I had a better memory of like really seeing, like when did I see this? I totally did. I, I, for some reason, I there are definitely so many movies over time where I'm like, I saw this in the theater, but I don't remember it at all especially that summer of 2004 that was probably like one of the last moments in time when i saw a ton of shit in the theater because ign had such a movie going culture the entire time i was there so you just saw a lot of things but i'm curious what you remember about this movie spider-man 2 what you thought of it then what you think of it now and where we should where should we begin i mean take it away yeah it's a toughie but i'm so glad you put this movie on the list kyle it was so nice to revisit it for me i'm a big sam raimi fan We already gushed about the first film, as you said. I think that was a relative gush fest, talking about the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man in the trilogy. So it was nice to go back into this one. I remember seeing this one in the theater with Helene in 2004. And my memory, I think I had only seen it. I probably have only seen it once, and that was in the theater before we revisited it for the ep. And I remember not liking it as much as the first one. And although I enjoyed it, I remember being like, oh, the first one kind of set the bar for me. And I still kind of felt that that way at that time. And it was down to remembering, and you guys know I'm such a puss, right? I thought it was a little, I had a memory of this movie being a little too violent and a little too Raimi Army of Darkness. Although I'm a huge fan, like I, I felt like it was a little, a little rough around the edges, like a little too. I don't want to say mean-spirited, but that type of action where you know the citizens are in peril, but you don't want to see them getting crushed by the falling buildings, but it was showing that. 
I was remembering it completely wrong. And actually, my memories were down to one very specific scene, which I'm sure we're going to get to. But in revisiting it again, man, this is a great movie. I love stepping back into the pre-Disney MCU. You know, Disney, I think, bought Marvel in what, 2009? So we still had another five years to go. One more film after this in the Raimi trilogy before that happens. And I love going back to that sort of pre-Disney time with just how the Marvel stuff was being tackled almost 20 years ago because it was kind of a different flavor. And I feel like Sam Raimi is such a big part of the conversation because this is when it was still being done well that you could take a signature director and put them on a major franchise like Spider-Man, somebody who was known with a signature style, but who, who could also take something and do it properly, do it proper service, where later on, I would argue with the Ryan Johnsons, and many of us feel that way, not everybody, where you would take a, a signature director and put them on something, and it was more akin to that director being irreverent, where this was sort of the age where you could put a Sam Raimi or a Tim Burton on something. They could bring their own calling card, but still make it something with mass appeal. And I think this movie is a great sort of um, example of that from this era. And I really enjoyed it. I think it's a really, I still think it really holds up. And when something holds up 20 years later, that means a lot. And strikingly relevant because Sam Raimi has been brought back into the Marvel fold under Disney to direct Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And I think that was a winning move by Disney. It's it that that's one of the moves that gives me faith in the Disney brass or the powers that be over there creatively to pull someone like Raimi in from the past and put them into current MCU under Disney and say you could do this thing. I think that movie just opened yesterday. So oddly relevant this conversation. Yep. But Indeed. really uh, you know from the outset I really did enjoy the film. I think there's obvious, there's really honestly not too much I find wrong with it. And I was kind of struck by how much, I don't know, how well it holds up, especially in the face of the current MCU, which I think is, you know, very well done and very well handled. And we haven't even really broken, sort of breached the surface with the current MCU yet, although we're getting there. So this is a nice way to go back. Super nostalgic for me. I love everybody at the center of this, Raimi, McGuire, Kirsten Dunst. And uh, I look forward to having the conversation with you. Yeah, and re I don't know much. Of, I mean, I say this over and over again. I don't know much about film. I guess I'm learning more the more we do this show. As far as the mechanics of it and the players in it and stuff. So Sam Raimi, I, I always knew from The Evil Dead, but didn't really know anything else other than Spider-Man. And, and reading about him a little bit, I didn't realize he had, first of all, like total horror bona fides the way he does with like Darkman and all these other films. Sure. But that he's had like quite a few box office successes like it's weird that he doesn't work more based on the success he had even with movies like i was looking up this movie drag me to hell which was a 2009 yeah, horror movie that. that made three times its budget back you know like um he did oz the great and powerful that made yes two and a half times its budget with a 200 million dollar budget so budget it's, movie, it's yeah. very interesting I, I was just looking at that and i'm like why because I, I knew it was a big deal that he was coming back. In fact, I, I I had learned and was reading that he had really stopped directing movies for the most part. And I think he was working on like that Ash versus the Evil Dead TV show for a while and kind of just doing some other stuff as an executive producer. And he was courted back and I didn't really understand and I still don't really understand like why he's back at Marvel, why it's such a big deal in the sense that like it's kind of a big deal for you to get him 
not for him to be with you in my in my mind. I didn't I guess I didn't realize it was quite like that with him. Uh, but I, I agree with what you were saying, sentiment, you know, sentimentally about this film. Remembering it then and watching it now and having such a lack of remembrance then and really looking at it through a modern lens. This is a great movie. I obviously have criticisms of the movie. I have criticisms of everything that's that's part of being a critic and a pundit. But it is a very rock solid movie. And I have to say, like every once in a while, I go into the, some of these things, that these tasks that we have to do for knockback. And I'm like, eh, I don't really want to like it's I got to do it, but I'm I'm not going to be happy that I'm doing it. And I'm almost always happy that we did it. And for some reason, every superhero movie we do, that's not Batman. I'm like, ah, like I. But then I go into Iron Man and I love it. Then I go into the Hulk and I surprisingly really like the Hulk movie. And so I don't know why I'm and, and Spider-Man, too. I always liked the original Spider-Man, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. But this, this 2004 film is, is rock solid. Some weirdness in it. I think James Franco's character is weird, although I like James Franco. I think his character is, is weird. I think one of the peculiar things is just the, like, why is Peter Parker so down and out? It doesn't really make any sense. Like, I know that what they're trying to say, but it doesn't really hit for me why he's just like, if you're so smart and so able or whatever, you'll figure something out. It's uh, You're just so down on your luck. It's almost comical. So that's a problem, but but I otherwise, I otherwise dig it. And I wanted to use this, um, inquiry from connor haney to get a little further in he says all right guys there are so many iconic parts to spider-man 2 perhaps the most impressive part of the film's overall message consequence majority of this film has been showing how positive actions for spider-man have a negative effect on peter spider-man 2 is my favorite film of all time and it's finally what got me right in the show after all these years thank you connor for writing in what do you think about the meta of spider-man 2 i mean it is obvious that it is about something much deeper than these movies typically are about and that's part of what I think makes them special. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't important messages and subtext in MCU films, but I don't feel like they are quite like this. And it works for me. Again, it is hammed up and ridiculous. Like Peter can't do anything right. He's going late to class. Is he's late with the pizza? Is this and that and the other thing? It's but at the same time, it's like yeah, I get it. He's likable. We we root for him. There's something. There's a really interesting thread here like they, they they thread it perfectly of just enough action enough care i don't know i i really feel like this film is in some ways shockingly good compared to a lot of the things we get have gotten since in the way that superheroes are treated because i don't think it's it's kind of serious and for some reason it doesn't come off as campy or weird like you believe it it's like oh yeah spider-man now maybe it's new york city as a character maybe it's some good acting from other characters but even with Albert Molina as this extraordinary supervillain and mm. Dr. Octopus, like it's believable. I don't know. I just believe it. And it's not, I'm not saying it's grounded because I think that that's different. Batman's grounded. I don't think this is necessarily grounded, but it's believable. I think that that's why it's so interesting. What do you have to say about that, about, about the movie, the meta of the movie, like kind of the underlying philosophical message being obviously about this, this dichotomy within Peter and this, tearing that he's experiencing about being spider-man or about being peter and not really being able to serve both masters yeah i like that i mean inherently spider-man when you're doing a spider-man vehicle right i think you already have the appeal of spider-man and the appeal of peter parker going for you so i think you already have the odds in your favor because i think it's probably pretty hard to get it completely wrong 
those two characters, uh, like you said, very likable. I think Peter is a very likable character. He's very boy next door. Aw, shucks. He's a good kid. There's some humility there. He's kind of thrust into this situation accidentally. And I love also how Spider-Man is just kind of perpetually underpowered in a way. He has these cool powers. He has this pseudo flying power with the web slinging. He's obviously super agile and he has that kind of endurance. But it always feels like when he faces off against a villain that he's kind of there in the driver's seat and he's kind of underpowered compared to them. And you also know in that same breath that he's very young and that his powers, powers are still developing. Maybe he's still a little reluctant. So you know there's a ceiling still for Peter to reach. So it's exciting. And you're rooting for him because of that. And he has like just enough power to survive, but the powers are growing. It's evolving. That's part of the, the Peter Parker and Spider-Man story, is that that sort of is going to evolve as he gets older and becomes more mature. And I think that is a big part of what makes it enjoyable to watch and then i think also peter struggling with those powers as a young man is very relatable as well because again it's kind of propelled by the tragedy with his uncle who's one of his dearest family members that he loses and everything that uncle ben instilled in him with great power comes great responsibility and on the other hand you're a kid and you have to make ends meet and you have and you have a college career to worry about and you try and have relationships friendships romances all these type of things so you're trying to balance these two things and even though most of us can't relate to that we can relate to maybe kind of peter and spider-man with our social lives and our work lives or our careers for something we kind of put two and two together it's kind of a apples and oranges comparison in a way but it's kind of not it's kind of apples to apples and I think that's make, what makes it very understandable for us and keeps us in the cheering section for Peter and for Spider-Man. And I think they do a very good job in the, in this, in the Raimi trilogy. We could talk about three. Three might be a separate conversation, but certainly two is still at the center of that where it's like we're, re we're really enjoying the ride with Peter and the growth. And, you know, a big part of this, too, is Sam Raimi kind of can deliver everything. Again, he's one of those guys that could do drama. He could do story, character, tension, action, a little bit of horror, a little bit of scares. Obviously, he's known for that. Just the right amount of camp and a very specific sense of humor and a comedic timing that, you know, there's really nothing this guy can't do. Levity, sentimentality when he needs to. It's the complete package. And that's what's so cool about Sam Raimi is that, yeah, you, you, you hire Sam Raimi for the Evil Dead, all those calling horror and aesthetic calling cards, but then he kind of just, do, he does everything. He's the complete director. And I think he was the perfect person to helm this film and the, this trilogy of films because of that. And it does, this movie, when you really look at it from the outside, really does have all of that. And I think that really helps that coupled with, I think all of the key performances really bring it to bear that this this movie has aged very well, and uh, you know I really enjoy that. It does. It it also aged has aged aged well aesthetically. Although I think one of the worst shots is mm. one of the first shots, which is after that really beautiful animated intro, which I think is cool. It gets you caught up, very stylish, just like the first movie. Had oh, it's beautiful. The intro. Alex Ross art. 
watercolor it's, it's, art. Yeah, it's wonderful. But uh, then they show this billboard of MJ for her play or whatever, and it's just clearly a CG image. And I'm like, why would you not put that on a real billboard? Like that that. But right after that, I was like, that's probably the worst shot in the film. So it's a weird, weird shot to begin on. But that is, a I like him. One. But I do like seeing Peter, you know, lane splitting in New York City, not legal, not often seen there, but delivering his pizzas. I, I was imagining the the chaos of the pizza, like what the, the, that pizza even look like. And you know what I couldn't help but think of was uh, TMNT, the movie, just the, the yes. delivery guy. There's a very similar feel to this film and that TMNT movie, the Henson one, tonally, isn't there? There's something about, yeah. I don't know if it's the New York setting or what. No, there is. And I think, well, I think part of it is that it's like kind of New York's kind of a character in both films. I think it and I think they're kind of accurate to their time periods, too, because we're seeing like 1988, 1989, mm. 1990, New York City, which is a totally different beast in TMNT to what they're doing in in 2000, in the early 2000s in New York yeah, City, when it's point. probably at its best. I mean, historically. Yeah, you might be right. So there's something about that. But I, I agree. And actually, I was not to bring it up because I always bring it up. But it's like, man, I, I feel like this these Spider-Man movies, I never saw the third one for sure. So I have no idea. What's oh, okay. That movie. Oh, you're but, in for a treat. But uh, yeah, the TMNT movie in this, it just makes me feel like Raimi or that style. It's like, man, this is what I want for G.I. Joe. And this is what I would want for something like Metal Gear Solid, if they were to ever do do it as Great well, point. where it's just like accept it as real. Right. And then work around it that way. Don't try to like make the world real. And then how does this fit into it? I feel like the MCU does that somewhat well from what I can tell from the outside by having like the Avengers tower and all the shit in the, in the, like it's a, it's a part of life. Sure. And then you can kind of integrate those things into the story. So I think that's kind of cool, but I wanted to jump over before, not that I would forget, but I do have to give a shout out because we're introduced to him early and, and often is JK Simmons as J Jonah Jameson. He's excellent. This is an excellent performance. I don't know what he's like in the comics. He's like this in the games. I remember it kind of being like this in the cartoons and things I've seen too, but I feel like I really love this performance. This is such a strong performance, and I I wanted to throw that back at you at at you, knowing that you're such a you're so interested in character actors. I feel like this movie kind of succeeds because it's not, it focuses on a few great performances. You know, you have Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, and Alfred Molina, and Rosemary Harris, or whatever. Very small kind of cast. And then some great character actors, like the guy that plays the landlord. Awesome. Oh, awesome so character. Good. The people yeah. on the train, right? Get, giving that, like, you got to go through all of us, Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, like that kind of post-9-11 New York City stuff. Awesome. There's just a lot of that stuff. So talk to me about some of the performances that you might have been enjoyed in the, in, the, uh, in the film. Well, J.K. Sims is a great place to start. I mean, really the consummate character actor. And I love the way he could swing between something really dramatic and grounded and believable and then something a little more over the top and blustery and cartoony like this, where he's the cigar chomping. Yeah, he plays he plays like the fucking arch neo-Nazi in Oz, which is like so. That's right. Yeah. You always remind me of that, and I've yeah. never seen. I've seen like two episodes of that show. Dude, that he is so horrifying in that in that TV show that I can't even get over. Like I always see that. That's why I think it's so funny that he does the the commercials for the insurance company. And I'm yes. like, there's got to be a subsection of us that see him as like the guy that used to like rape everyone and like go like you know have like sw- tattooing swastikas on people. I'm like, that's that guy. But anyway, what, I digress. <laughs> what is a better display of chops than that? Where he could be the farmer's insurance guy, super approachable, warm, funny, 
and then swing to a role like that where he's like the most horrifying guy in this prison you know this just the most disgusting prison ever so and to be able to carry that off is insane and he re- he really does he really he's a he's an actor who could just do anything i think i think there's so many good actors and actresses that sometimes the best get lost in the shuffle but he's certainly mm-hmm. among the best and i love that it's so sort of reverent and reverential and faithful to the comic and cartoon adaptations over the years too, even though he's doing his own thing and he's, he's being JK Simmons and he's bringing all his chops. It's still a sort of dead ringer for the, you know, the J Jonah Jameson that we all grew up with in the comics and the cartoons. And that's kind of hard. That's a hard thing to swing. So he, he's at really at the the center of that, you know, what'd (laughs) you say? Said pardon the pun because you said swing. <laughs> pardon the pun, but yes, and pardon the pun. But yeah, everybody, everybody's good, and everybody just delivers the right amount of that. Again, that comic sort of adaptation with doing their own thing and making it this sort of masterwork of being a great swing be- between just exciting and cartoony and grounded and believable i think this movie really walks the line there and the, and the actors i don't think there's a bad one in the entire bunch whether the part is small or large and i think you know that's kind of rare to get that you know everybody is really i always i'm always kind of want to kick it to the people who were really the spider-man faithful as far as growing up with the comics and knowing them all and being spider-man super fans how they feel about it but for me, just having a, a you know, a, a love affair in a, in a more removed way with the comic books, not knowing them as well as some, but how the ones that really know the comics, how these characters work for them. But for me, I think they're a great, they're a great proxy for any audience, I think, no matter how well you know the comics. And I think that's sort of having that sort of approachable philosophy to putting your movie together. I don't know. That might be getting lost. Because this was before, I think that's an important thing to remember, 2004 was before really nerddom, as we know it today, really kicked off. It was just starting. It was in its infancy then. The wheels were just starting to churn. But now I think it's a little more, the price for entry is a little higher, whether you're into Star Wars or Star Trek or the superhero stuff. I think the MCU, again, does a a better job than almost anything under Disney. But, you know, back then, I feel like anybody could have went to this film and enjoyed it. Your grandparents could have went to this film and found some sort of enjoyment. And that, I think that's changed over the last better part of 20 years. I agree. And actually, Piyush Pont wrote into us and said just this. He says, Spider-Man 2 is not just a good superhero movie. It's a good movie on its own. Do you think that's why it still holds up so well? I agree. Now, I always tried to use our, our father as kind of a benchmark. He's an he's a avid moviegoer. He loves going to the movies. He watches sure. a ton of movies. So, but I know he loves like, and not loves, but he likes superhero movies. He watches the MCU stuff and all that. So he's not like the perfect person to, I guess, compare to this, but like, it seems like these movies were more for people like him. In fact, I felt that way about the X-Men movies during around this time too, a little sure. earlier, like where I've said before, he and I accidentally rented that first X-Men movie. We tried to rent something else and it was in the case and we were like, all right, well, I guess we'll watch it. And we were like, oh, this is dope. You know, James, what was that guy? Stewart. What's his name? Not James Stewart. Uh, the, the actor. Oh, um, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Yeah. He's, he's there and he's uh, he's hanging out. And, you know, that draws dad right in. There's something about 
you know, dad, dad loves James or why do I keep calling him James Patrick Stewart? <laughs> it's so weird. I'm calling him that, especially because I'm watching the red letter media Picard stuff. Oh my God. Those guys and they're fucking hilarious. cracking me up with all that. So I don't know why I'm getting it. those guys. Are That's just... the only Star Trek content I, I, I care for. Yeah, me too. I, yeah, I, I, so I've so never good. seen any of the movies or the shows, but I've, I watched their, their uh, stuff about it because they're so passionate about it. And they're so That's such a about test it, so. of it. But let's, before we get into any of the other characters, I guess, beyond we already talked about Mr. Jameson, let's talk about Tobey Maguire himself. I just think Tobey Maguire mm-hmm. is fucking awesome in this film. I, I, I love his performance. I don't know that I bought it or realized how much I bought it as, as much as I do when I was younger. Like, I always was like, fine. We had nothing to really compare it to. You have to remember, like, when we saw this movie, there was, we had, like, some Batman shit that had right. happened. Some really, like, you know, early X-Men stuff. Some abortive stuff that happened in various DC and, and Marvel properties. But we had never really had a benchmark like this. Like, this was the benchmark. And moving forward, like, he's great. That's why I'm so stoked. And I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. I've not seen it. But I think everyone knows is that, like, they drew him into the new star, into the new Spider-Man movie. Along with Albert Molina and a bunch of other people, at least in passing. And kind of acknowledging that that was, like, another timeline. Which I thought was so cool. And I really, I buy his performance. I, I want, I'm rooting for him. I want him to win. There's something about the, the, the workmanship of his, of his character. Like he's just, he's studious. He keeps his head down. He's kind. He realizes he's kind of like downtrodden, but never really gets upset about it. Like the shot of him walking away from the woman when she doesn't refuses to buy the pizza and just says nothing to her. That's a great shot of like resignation, him getting the sticker ripped off his helmet by the pizza guy and running into his professor and, running into the guy where he's like rent and he goes into the bathroom and opens the door. It's that, that character is great. So you root for him. Sometimes I want him to like have bigger balls, be like, stand up for yourself or do something for yourself. But he's trying, like we don't, I guess see all of his days and all of the texture of what he's doing with this time, but it looks like he's trying and we're rooting for him. I just, I, I feel this performance. I, I it's hard for me to imagine not really being familiar with the new Spider-Man. Cause I know there's two since then. I saw the rebooted Spider-Man in between, like the one that's kind of just forgotten about. I forgot who that was, but um, that was fine. Oh, Andrew but Garfield. I, Andrew Garfield. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, this will always be Spider-Man to me. I think. So what? What do you think? Yeah, you know, I think every time they cast a Spider-Man, they've done a good job. I, Andrew Garfield, I'm a little more on the fence about, but certainly Tobey Maguire, of course, which we'll talk about, and even with Tom Holland now. And everybody else, you know, whether you're voicing Jake Johnson, voicing Peter B, Peter B. Parker in the Spider-Verse films, that's I think it's always well cast. But I feel the same as you, Kyle, and that just might speak to us being old men. But Tobey Maguire does such a great job, and I think you make an amazing point. Actors at this time, starting in 2002 with Tobey Maguire sort of taking on the role of Peter Parker, actors were just starting to embody the roles of these iconic superheroes. I mean, really the only one of the only previous ones was Christopher Reeves with Superman that we knew, but this was before really we started to know actors and actresses as Wanda or Cable or Deadpool or whoever Cyclops or whoever it was going to be Wolverine, certainly right mm-hmm. where you kind of drew parallels with that. Oh, that character will always be that iconic comic book character. This was just the really the tip of the iceberg. And I think Tobey Maguire is so good. I think he's so likable. I was reading up on him 
and thinking he's fascinating. I always think of him drawn up with his, with his boy, Leo DiCaprio and how they came up together and helped each other. And I think about, obviously his filmography is not nearly as big as Leo's, but what kind of makes him tick and what made him work? And I didn't realize he's been out of the public eye for the better part of a decade before he came back and did Spider-Man far from home uh, in 2021 which is part of that whole Marvel metaverse thing. And I haven't even seen that film yet, so I can't really speak to it. I'm, I'm behind on that one. And that had a long cinematic theatrical run too, so I don't know what my excuse is. But I was kind of sort of perturbed to hear that he kind of stepped out of the limelight for so long. And obviously a guy who, who's had his struggles and kind of dealt with his demons with, I guess, gambling and, and alcohol and all of that. But when I was really looking at what makes him so appealing, why do I like him so much as Peter? Why do I like him so much as Spidey? I think there's one thing that is a little unbelievable in that he kind of lacks that I grow, uh, you know, I'm a kid growing up in New York, typical, or at least in a fictional way as it's represented in film and TV, that chip on their, on the, on the shoulder. You know, he's much more kind. He's much more even keeled. And I think you make a really awesome point. It's his reactions of dealing with things. We want to be like that. There is no way we're as hard or down on our luck as Peter is in this film, for instance, that we're dealing with it in stride like he is. So he's automatically someone we admire because of that. And you want to, you would love to handle things like he's handling it and just taking things in stride and sort of hoping for hoping for a turn of his a turn of luck and it's it's awesome and it makes you root for him even more and i think yeah that appeal and the dedication to being spider-man and the fact that they he wasn't even going to come back for the second one apparently they were going to get jake gyllenhaal to do it because i guess toby was having trouble negotiating a rate or they you know his people felt like he wasn't going to get enough to come back for the rest of the trilogy i guess it wasn't a trilogy that's interesting, an interesting part that he wasn't sort of set to do all three films initially, which is kind of neat to know about in retrospect. But yeah, I think he's a great, he's really the driving force at the center of this thing. And I still, I think Tom Holland is great. He kind of has a lot of the same likable, appealing, aw shucks, that, that humility and all that kind of thing. Toby just has it in a different way for a different era, but I think it holds up really well. Yeah, it's. I was excited for Spider-Man fans like Chris Raygun, who I do Sacred Symbols with, who's a mega Spider-Man fan. In fact, I think this one is his favorite Spider-Man film. Oh, that's awesome. And, and I know that they were just so stoked to see like all of the characters come back from these other Spider-Man movies to kind of because these that. were these were like the the stranded, especially the second series, but this one too, where this they're stranded outside of the MCU. So to kind of wrap them in and have Sony kind of play ball and allow them to acknowledge these movies and it's good. Like, like the ball's being moved down the field a little bit in terms of working together and kind of tying these things all together at one as one. Although I know that they kind of overcame that with uh, the Avengers with Spider-Man years ago. Let me ask you this, Kyle. Yeah. Just, this just kind of dawned on me comparing Spider-Man inevitably to Batman. Do you think now Batman's had this cinematic approach of let's do a new Batman every time we're going to reinvent the story, the treatment, the aesthetic, we'll bring in a different actor. That seems to be the notion with Batman. And I think it's going to continue that way. And I'm not arguing for or against it. I'm just saying that's obviously the way it is. 
Do you think Spider-Man should adapt a similar philosophy and like, let's bring a new Peter Parker in for every age, or should it be a more consistent treatment? You know, should we see Spider-Man age if we want to tell that sort of limits it in wanting to tell, you know, then you have to tell the story in a certain direction. But what do you think? Which one, which dynamic do you think works best for Spidey in particular? Yeah, it's a good question because from my limited knowledge of Spider-Man, they kind of tackle this in some way with the Miles Morales character in which it seems like they exist in, at least in the games, in the same world, right? So like there's Spider-Man and then this kid comes in and becomes Spider-Man and allows the old Spider-Man to kind of do his own thing. And that's the way I kind of feel like they should deal with it. I just don't think that back then, like during these movies, clearly, and even after this, they weren't organized enough. They didn't realize what they had. And obviously the MCU didn't exist yet. This was pre-Disney, like you said. Sure. So this isn't part of the MCU or even what could have been part of the MCU. So I just think that the approach of saying, let's stick with characters and get people to know them over a generation even, I think is really strong. And I know that the, I think they're going to be struggling that with that, right, with Wolverine, or have they already done that? I mean, Hugh, Hugh Jackman is getting old. And if you want to keep doing something with Wolverine, you might have to get a new Wolverine, but that's going to be tough because everyone kind of knows this guy is Wolverine. And it, it begs the question of like, do you let things rest or do right. you just force this new idea in? And that's, a tough, get, that's a tough one. Because like, he think, walked away, right? He's right. done. He right, says exactly. He's done. Exactly. So, and I, yeah. But I would also say, I would also argue that when we see things like, things that I would have been totally skeptical about, like seeing, um, I don't remember his name, but the guy that played Han Solo in the Solo film. Oh, that, sure, the kid, yeah. Yeah, that I would, I was like, there's no way I'm going to believe this. And yet first, I watched the movie, I was like, that was fucking awesome. I loved that. Oh, yeah, of course, that's Han Solo. And I would have loved to see more of that guy you know that actor as hansel we're never going to see that character again no he was good he was awesome i thought it was awesome i thought that movie was great and so i'm always surprised by or not always but often surprised by what i think i can't tolerate and then surprised that the things that i think i can tolerate i can no longer tolerate i find (laughs) i find that in games all the time where i think i just turned on uh, last week i downloaded because it was free on ps plus the battle for bikini bottom rehydrated the the spongebob game that they just okay. released on ps4 i was like i really want to play a platformer and i really just want this 3d collectathon and then i was like an hour and i'm like no i don't and i just deleted it off my machine like I, I was pretty positive that that's exactly what i wanted and then it wasn't that way at all all right sometimes you just gotta try you just gotta jump in i agree sink or swim let's go to albert molina the late mm. nate wrote in and said hey cdm simple question Alfred Molina as Doc Ock, the defining comic book villain performance until the Joker in the Dark Knight, or no? Hope you soon can hold the power of the sun in the palm of your hand. Thank you, Nate, for writing in. Thank you, my friend. I don't know that I really like that comparison because it's not that much later that we get we get the Joker. So it's like four years between the mm. films. So I'm I'm like there's nothing it's not like it is now where there's 17 movies a year and that that would have superheroes or supervillains. And I'm like, I'm not even sure what would be in that gap. But I will say this, that Albert Molina is awesome in this film. And there's something about, there's something weird about this character of Otto Octavius. Maybe just the way that they present it in the film. I'm sure it's different in the many comic book iterations, etc. But like they kind of make it work anyway. Like he's creating this thing. This this power source. Okay, that's cool. Kind of timely. Like it would still make sense today. Like we would still be interested in this kind of story today. They probably looked at it, you know, 2004, and they're like, yeah, we'll have some sort of a 
green technologies that will make this seem maybe a little more quaint but for now this makes sense and no it's still still something we're chasing to this day not that it would ever be like that uh you know like a sun that you would create i'm not saying right that. but nonetheless he creates this thing but that's not enough to make him a super villain that see if in a batman per, like performance or whatever that would probably be enough they have to give him these like elect you know these arms that allow him to deal with and hold the sun that he's creating it's kind of goofy but it works and there's like a echo of Mr. Freeze here for me because it's a, his fall is kind of a lot about the death of his wife and his well power said. kind of getting out of control and all of that. But I really enjoyed this. And it's cool as having seen it now because you see it in the trailers for the new film, which I have not seen the new Spider-Man movie where they're all in it, where he's like, yes. hello, Peter. he's like, hello, Peter. It's like it's, it's actually like him today. And I was like, that's so cool. And his glasses, although I did find the I did find the glasses funny because no one else needed to wear the glasses but him as they were all looking at the sun. So I thought that was a little weird. But other than that, really great performance. I loved Albert Mullion in this. I loved his wife, too. I thought she was a brief performance, but she was great. I loved the kind you believed their relationship, the way they looked at each other and, and engaged with each other. Very effective. Yeah. Uh, talk, talk to me a little bit about Albert Molina as Otto Octavius. Yeah. Shout out to Donna Murphy, who plays Rosalie Octavius. She's really good for such a small part she really grounds it and it's so nice to see alfred molina pop up he's one of those great character actors that you could easily forget about he has such a huge filmography on film and television stage acting chops i mean he's one of those guys that's just gonna bring it of course we many of us first met him as sapito and raiders in 1981 indy's guide and sherpa who sort of runs afoul of indy and tries to steal the fertility idol so that's you know and i think and looking at his filmography, I was expecting it to go back further. That was his first role. That was yeah. Alfred Molina's first uh, feature film role, which is kind of neat to find out. And I love, you know, it's such a great character. I love, first of all, even the most casual of Spidey fans like myself, who would pick up a Spider-Man comic from the drugstore spinner rack now and again. Sometimes it was Iron Man. Sometimes it was Amazing Spidey, whatever it was. Later on, X-Men certainly didn't, tune into every issue certainly didn't have huge boxes of every issue of spider-man but he was for even the most casual fan one of the iconic spidey villains just the way he looked he had that green jumpsuit with the goofy bowl haircut and of you know of course the huge metallic octopus tentacles and all of that so it's a great example of how you could take something that's a little campy and goofy and perhaps dated from the 60s and make it for the year 2004 aesthetically treated a little less goofy grounded a little bit make it a little more modern which i think was cool and the performance is great it was interesting how they go back to the well of the first movie it's another sort of scientific slash father figure styled mentor for pete or would be mentor like osborne was in the first film another sort of vaunted scientist that peter admired and they kind of go back to the well, but then those two characters in Norman Osborn and Dr. Otto Octavius, they turn out to be pretty different. It's interesting how they seem similar on their face, but they're actually quite different. And yeah, just a great performance and a villain who you kind of, I love you bringing up the Dr. Freeze thing where it's like, yeah, that's, that's a very similar thing where the loss of a loved one, the loss of a beloved spouse is at the heart of this tragedy. And then there's a very Anakin Skywalker-esque sort of noble heart beating at the center of this villain. 
And it's one of those villains, unlike something that we'd get later, like Venom or something, where it's like you could, Peter could redeem this villain. It's not something, it's not a villain where it's going to be this, or like a Joker, where it's going to be a fight to the death, or this person is never going to go away. It's someone who's redeemable. And I kind of like that. I kind of love that they did that with this film, because again, you get a little bit of that sentimentality and story, and you get a little bit of the feels. It's not just about the action and the camp and the scares and all of the the computer effects. It's about what's at the heart of the story, which is a story about characters, even the bad guys. So that's what I love about uh, Dr. Octavius. And the fact also, this movie's not afraid to just make fun of the comic book tropes. His name, they just kind of deal with it in a very loving but cartoony way. You know, where they're like, yeah, they kind of point out how ridiculous it is that he has this name. They're talking about it in the in the newspaper room about naming him for the newspaper headlines and stuff. And it's very it it takes into consideration all that Stanley goofiness and just makes it work for the film, which I think is really something that that's why you bring Sam Raimi on board, because he's not afraid to inject that sense of humor. And I love that, you know, where you're not handling it with kids gloves or afraid to piss off the nerds. You just kind of do something and it and it works and it's fun. Yeah, and I think it looks good. Like I think when the when he when the uh, he get, straps himself in and 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 they kind of go around uh, down his spine and and inject themselves his arms into him. And I think it's it's super cool. I just I think it's goofy. It's like what well, you made this thing to handle this. It's just so it's so strange. Like see this the thing about the character is that I wish they gave it more time to breathe. I actually think the runtime's pretty brisk considering how good the movie is. Like I feel it like they've gotten another 20 minutes or so of this movie and i wouldn't have minded and maybe spending a little more time and letting that character breathe a little bit there's almost like a redundancy with his professor character because we meet him and it's like why couldn't maybe otto octavius have just been the character that is also teaching and and gets to know peter and gets brought in 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 that way i don't know if it's, it's true to the comics but i just would have loved to have spent more time with him because it happens very very rapidly it would have been cool to see Otto and his wife a couple more times together and, and believe that relationship even a little bit more. So that's my only disappointment is like, stop moving so fast. It's like you meet him, he's doing the review and, and they really send home that Oscorp is kind of like cravenly just funding him and all of this, but like, let it breathe. That's a villain that could have transcended a couple of films. I agree. It would have worked, but I think there's such a flop sweat with that and wanting to make it new every time and exciting. And now you're going to see Rhino or now you're going to see, you know, I think uh, the Dr. Connors character, they were fixing to make that, make him into the reptile. They never did it. But they were, you know, or you're going to see whoever, whoever else is the iconic, Craven the Hunter or my whoever. Favorite, my favorite's the Shocker. I love Shocker. Shocker is great. Yeah, people always make fun of me for liking it, but I love the. Oh, classic. The, the arms shooting electricity. Absolute classic. Very neat. Yeah, the Sinister Six. Uh, is, I don't know if he was part of that, but I like them, like uh, Mysterio. And I think we get oh. some of those guys in. Like I was introduced to those characters in the cartoon in the nineties. Yes. Mr. Sinister and all of those guys. I loved those characters. Uh, I loved Mysterio. Doesn't he throw like dice or something, some weird shit like that? I don't. Yeah. And Mysterio he, looks amazing. Yeah. He has, I don't like, remember yeah, what his, what his thing, what his conceit is, but yeah, there, you know, that's the thing too. They had, there's such a great rogues gallery that, you know, you do, you do kind of, I don't, you know, I don't know if they're beholden to a higher power. It's like, no, we got to bring in this character and then this actor to play this character. So there's always that, you know, you always want something fresh, but 
yeah, Alfred Molino could have could have buoyed that for two movies for sure. Yeah, and I think it was just because you know, obviously, I mean, the one the one problem with him playing two movies, I guess, is just kind of going up against Willem Dafoe and oh, them kind of bringing that back. It's almost like he's overshadowed by that Willem Dafoe character who they obviously mirror and bring back here. So maybe, maybe that would have been tough for them to do, but it would be cool for both of them to have been in the, or for everyone, well, I guess it wouldn't be both of them, but Franco to have been with Otto in the third movie. I don't know if that happens. I doubt it. Yeah, does. you'll see. You'll see. But, um, okay, let's move on to, hmm. Yeah, let's talk about James Franco, actually. Eric Myers wrote in and said, what in the world is up with James Franco in this movie? He's still friends with someone that, in his mind, knows where his father's murderer is and works with him, and also suddenly turns into a weirdo American psycho businessman. And why does he go crazy and imagine his dad in a mirror seemingly out of nowhere? And what's with the weird ceremonial dagger he was going to kill Peter with? What happened to this young man? This is, I think, this is one of the peculiar parts of it, because the thing about Franco's character in this is that I don't mind... His acting, I don't. I think the character's great. I, I I like the character of Harry or whatever, and and it's believable in this friend that's close close to Peter, and Peter knows the secret, and Peter can't tell him the secret, and all of this. It again, I think there's just a lack of breathing room given to this. It, it just goes from zero to sixty, and so you're kind of wondering like, where did this? But it kind of does mirror his own father. Like, if you're trying to be literal about it, maybe they were. It's like, well, his father was kind of fucking nuts. Oh, he's nuts. So maybe he would be the same way. Maybe it's some sort of genetic thing in some sense. But what did you think about his performance? Because, again, I know some people have a problem with this character. But, again, I don't think it's the performance himself itself. I like James Franco. I just think they don't give it enough of an arc. This movie could have been longer. I, I, I think they really showed a lot of restraint making it two hours. Two and a half hours? I think you could have probably solved some of these problems. Definitely. And there is a director's cut, which I haven't seen, oh, which neither. I'm not sure how substantive that director's cut is or what's in that, if that has anything to do with the Osbournes or Harry specifically. But I like what you said, Kyle, about the genetic sort of tie between Willie Defoe's character and James Franco, because he does kind of embody that insanity. I mean, nobody inherits Willem Defoe's insanity. We've talked about that acting style with Green Goblin slash Norman. He's out of his friggin' mind. And supposedly the one theory I heard that's a little divisive is that, well, Norman went crazy because of the drugs he was taking, taking to do that scientific experiment where Harry, of course, wasn't subject to those things. Right. But it could definitely be some family and genetic inheritance of just that craziness or and or James Franco's character is driven by revenge or wanting to avenge the death of his father, which I, which I totally get. But I like James Franco's sort of half-crazed performance because it is a direct nod to the way Willem Dafoe played that character. And if you were missing Willem Dafoe for the first movie, he does make his appearance. And just for that brief sp- screen presence, it is pretty insane. It's as insane as Willem Dafoe could make it. And I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that whole thing, that whole arc. It doesn't, you know, a lot of it, you got to kind of suspend your disbelief because James Franco is on one hand sort of enjoying the the the, the riches and success of his position and f- taking over his father's company and also kind of buoying and, and supporting this new scientist that he thinks is going to be, you know, his newest windfall and all of that. But at the same time, He's lamenting the loss of his dad, and he kind of goes in between almost in a bipolar way of his attitudes. 
which, which is goofy, but maybe it just speaks to the insanity of it. Overall, I, I really enjoyed the performance. And, you know, you got to kind of, it's it's sad for James Franco because we're talking about James Franco in a, in a whole nother reality now compared to 2004 with everything that he's allegedly done and was sort of, you know, not sort of. I mean, he was pretty heavily Me Too'd. And, you know, I think that's why we don't see a lot of him. I, I think even I read even Seth Rogen wrote him off. Yeah, I heard which that, which I don't. I don't know the, the the full extent of what he's accused of, but that struck me as weird. It's like, wow, man, why yeah. did he publicly do that? Is yeah, that's is strange. Weird. I don't Very, know. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. And I don't know the extent of, but you know, it is it is interesting. It's it's this nostalgic look back at James Franco before all of that, and it's interesting because he, and he was so much younger then. I think a lot of people were really thinking of him as that young James Dean type still, and. I guess he did have a lot of that charm and magnetism back then, especially, you know, he, it was 20 years ago. He was 20 years younger. So it is interesting. It's an interesting look back at a different time for sure. Remind you of an, you, you're looking at something to, from two decades past. Yeah. I'm reading because we felt the same way. I'm just reading a little bit about him right now, about some of the accusations because we saw him in the same light with uh, freaks and geeks, which we did a couple sure. years ago. Yeah. Let me see here. Yeah, this is the I remember reading this. So 2019, the New York Times reports that there he had an acting program, Studio Four, I guess, that was little more than a scheme to provide him and his male collaborators with a pool of young female performers they could take advantage of. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, there's a bunch of lawsuits, I guess, pending. Oh, still pending. I guess. on. Yeah, it looks like maybe some maybe some um, not criminal, but but. uh you know, for money. So here's something, Kyle, that you would find interesting. As far as I know, last I heard, he had the rights to a couple of Cormac McCarthy novels. I think Sutri, which is a great book, and Child of God, which I think he even did a proof of concept short for Child of God, which is a pretty, it's a, it's a heavy book. I mean, that's almost as heavy as The Road or, you know, certainly some of Cormac McCarthy's other works, but that that's interesting too. And I guess I wonder how the, it affects that because whether he was going to star in those films or he was just going to helm them from behind the camera, I'm not sure. But that's another thing too. It's like, you know, he, he had a lot of power in Hollywood. He, he had optioned huge things. He wasn't just an actor. So it is particularly disturbing if those alleged things are true. Because of all the power he holds in Hollywood, it is right. very similar to a you know a Harvey Weinstein type thing. I'm, or it could be. Yeah, I'm. On one hand, always skeptical of accusations, unfounded accusations, because they're made all the time against people for all sorts of different reasons. If you believe all the things that were said about me on the internet, I would you know, <laughs> be in the seventh layer of hell right now. So I try to take everything with a grain of salt, but I also feel like where there's smoke, there's fire. It's the same, mm. mm-hmm. same thing. I feel like with um. Sure. In the NFL with Deshaun Watson, the quarterback who has like 23 accusations against him. And it's wow. like, well, you might you might deny them, but it just seems like Occam's razor suggests there's there's something here. So that's a lot. Wow. It's worth noting that through the modern lens that, yeah, James Franco is a different James Franco here. All right. Let's talk about MJ. John Barnett wrote in and said, hey, Super Mario already bros. Spider-Man 2 is one of my favorite movies of all time. and was incredibly an incredibly developmental for me as a youth when it was released in 2004. In recent years, people have brought up concerns about the way Peter and MJ treat each other in this film, with some even calling the two a toxic couple. 
How do you feel about mm. this issue? Thanks. Can't wait to hear this one when it's out. Thank you, John, for writing in. The thing that bothers me about MJ in this movie is it has nothing to do with her. It really has more to do with with Peter himself, which is like, I don't buy this idea that, and neither does she at the end, that Peter can't have anyone in his life because those that seek to know who he is and hurt him will go after those people. And it's like, that's that's so d- contrived and stupid. That's true for many people in right. many different situations, not just Spider-Man. You know, politicians have enemies and powerful businessmen and athletes and criminals that people stand by and all the rest, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement. Right. Law enforcement, of course. Um, I just feel like there's that's such a cop out. It's a cop out the entire time. It's one of the first things I wrote in my notes, actually, which is that I just don't understand why you can't tell certain people who you are and solve all of these problems. It's not like Aunt May is going to go out and tell everyone who you are. And yeah, maybe some supervillain will find out and hold her up and she'll tell him or something. And it's like, so what? You know, like, I, I, I just don't understand why it's so important that no one knows who he is. It, it's it's more important, I think, although still in some way unbelievable in Batman. I mean, that's one of the things that bothers me about that. It's like, who cares? First of all, how can you not tell? Second of all, who cares? It, it, it adds intrigue for intrigue's sake, but it's one of those things that could just be cut with a scissor and be done with. And that's that's what bothers me, I think, about MJ more than anything, is that with just more communication and Peter not being so ignorant about the ways of the world, I, I feel like these issues wouldn't even exist like that. Uh, that cafe scene when he's like no longer interested in her, I guess, apparently. And it's a great scene where he dives on top of her and the car comes in. Beautiful oh, scene, beautiful so shot. Good. But it's like, come on, man. Like this is so this ping pong game is so annoying. But I don't think that's really MJ's fault. So no. Talk to me about that character and that performance. No, that's really f- the frustrating part of this whole dynamic is that Peter is just so bad at explaining himself. It's like, do you have any words? Can you just try to articulate at least the reason why? Because he strings her along through obviously the first film, but now throughout most of the second film, it's like, just explain it. And that whole thing at the, at the, at the center of this thing where it's like, okay, I can't pursue this relationship this romance because if you're my significant other i put you directly in the line of danger because i'm always going to have spider-man is always going to have enemies and my enemies are going to want to hurt the ones closest to me in order to get to me that's the whole thing so it does seem a little contrived because spider-man as far as we know unless i'm remembering wrong hasn't really witnessed that yet specifically he's witnessed some baddies and he's got some fights on his hands but I don't think anybody well it's not true i guess and i guess uh aunt may was directly threatened earlier by yeah and aunt may by the way just really goes through the ringer in this one which she I really thought. does she just got tossed around like a fucking just like it's nothing like a leaf in the wind it's so funny it's, but uh, i'm sorry it's, that's a that's a weird that's a weird one for me the aunt may getting tossed around at the tops of skyscrapers and stuff it's pretty comical yeah it's it's very strange but as far as this, I mean, I, I feel like it would be more responsible of Spider-Man and smarter for him to tell the people that are closest to him, like, I'm Spider-Man, and you should just know that and watch out and be careful for what people ask you and tell you, and I'm telling you this to trust you. I I really, during the iconic train scene, I just, yeah. I love when he wakes up without his mask on. I think it's so an awesome good. scene. 
So he, good. And he doesn't realize that he has his mask on and all these people are willing to keep his secret. And one of them, hand the kid hands his mask back to him and stuff. It kind of speaks to what I think the audience is yearning to say to Peter the entire movie. And maybe that's Sam Raimi's whole approach, which is like, we're not going to tell anyone, Peter. Like, we know. And right. And it kind of puts that as a proxy into the film itself. Absolutely. I love that. I, I love that scene when and it's kind of confusing because there are a couple of times where I'm like, why are you taking your mask off at all? I don't understand what you're doing. It's cool. Spider-Man looks coolest when he doesn't have his mask on. I love I think. it. I love and that I think that that should be the character. Like so you wear good. the suit with just the with your face out. I love that. I love that scene or that, so that, that aesthetic rather. So but yeah, talk to me a little bit about Kirsten Dunst. How do you think she does in the film? Yeah, I love what she brings. I mean, she just continues all the charm that she, I think, brought from the first film. You know, there's a soulfulness to her. Like she has that whole girl next door thing, of course. It's MJ, Mary J. Watson, the notorious, one of the most iconic girls next door of all time, right? But kind of in the same breath, the one that would be you'd be very lucky to live next door to. Yes. And yeah, she's fit, obviously an attractive girl, but there's this inner beauty. There's a real soulfulness that she brings where it's it's beyond her appeal sort of transcends just the physical in that there's a kindness and an empathy and a thoughtfulness to her that makes her it gives her so much more allure than just being physically beautiful or cute and you could see why you know toby or peter is attracted to her because she has all of those qualities and you, I'm frustrated for her in this film because she really wants to, she's kind of caught between, I like the dynamic they do with John Jameson with Jonah's son, because he's kind of a good guy. He's not a dick. He's not like, you know, who MJ was rolling with in the first film, like flash Thompson and stuff like that. He's, he's kind of a good guy. He's actually a proper boyfriend, but she still can't get away from her feelings for Peter. And then it sort of ties in with her fond memories of kissing Spider-Man, that famous upside down kiss and everything. And at first you're a little confused by that because it's like, wait, she's got this kind of three way thing going on where she can't choose, but you find out she kind of realizes in not so many words, maybe even if she can't articulate it, that Peter and Spider that and Spidey are the same person. And she kind of discovers that even before Peter lets the cat out of the bag. So that only speaks to her love and her perception even more so, I think, because she kind of gets it even before she's spoon fed the information, which is kind of kind of a neat thing. And I love the way that when it's finally brought to light that she's down for it. You know, that whole go get him tiger moment. The only thing that confuses me is why does it why does the movie end on a sour note with her looking dour or worried? I I wasn't sure I got that. You know, all of a sudden she's happy, she tells him to go get it. you know, she's put maybe it's her game face. She doesn't want to stop him from being Peter Parker. Right, um, she's of course going to be worried about him, you know. But I think that's, it's the yeah. is that what it is? It's it's the worry. Yeah, I think it's just like well, you're it's acceptance that this is what it is, but now you're it's like the extreme version of having a cop or a firefighter as a spouse mm-hmm. or something, where mm-hmm. it's like, well, this could be the end. I mean, okay, I get that. I, so get I, that, I would sure. assume maybe that has something to do with it. I, I think I could buy that. Sure. But yeah. I, I agree. I, I dig this performance. I dig this character. You're, you're right. It's like the quintessential girl next door. 
and I just love the queens-ishness of their living situation and I don't know I dig it I, I I have no problem with her in this film at all again maybe a little bit more time to for some certain things to breathe because the one thing I guess I was confused about with her was I I'm writing notes diligently as I do these things so I, maybe I'm missing stuff but I look up and or if suddenly she's like marrying an astronaut or something I, I don't know where the, like what is that I don't is this a character in a in a comic book or something like oh or, jo- Jonah's son I think he I think he is from the comics as far as I know he is yeah I now I don't know if that yeah. was a romance that even existed in the comics or if it lasted for very long but I like the fact that it's not some bastard or some bully you know it's it's the fact it, you could see it being a proper love triangle and she would be pulled in. Almost like, wow, you're kind of foolish to be leaving this guy on the doorstep. Not only is he handsome and successful and heroic. I mean, he jumps onto that ship to save her. He's just as heroic as Spider-Man in many ways. So you're you're kind of painting that proper love triangle where it would be hard to choose. And you don't want to see... Also, you kind of feel for him because you don't want to see a good person get hurt. It's also Jonah Jameson's son, so you don't know what you're getting. But the apple fell far from the tree as far as just kind of being a human being with the kid, at least which is kind of neat. And that, that child actor that we see when Aunt May is moving or the kid, the kid character. Oh, I, yeah. I forget his name, but I looked it up. I'm like, oh, this must be some sort of obscure character. And it's not, apparently. And apparently, oh, a not. Lot, apparently a lot of people have looked this up and have come to the same conclusion. Like, I, I thought for sure that you would be like, oh, this is some sort of... Some villain or something. Yeah, some, some random character. But It's it, not, though. No, it's not. It's a, oh, okay. really just a vehicle, I guess, for him to express or to be expressed like we we love but you know why is spider-man missing and all this you know you just needed that but i i thought because they were so specific about like this is whatever his name is billy and he's he's helping me move and so i was like oh god who the fuck is this but it was it was no one all right let's get through a few other things here we have to talk about the operating room scene dirty oh, flint wrote god. in and said hello dnc this was the first superhero movie i saw in theaters and the theater's reaction to the operating room scene is a special memory Watching children pulled from the room by their parents was enjoyable on its own. How did you guys react to the scene the first time you saw it? I don't remember, but I wrote in my notes, ignorant of what anyone was saying about this. I was like, this, where did I say? I was like, oh, yeah, here it is. This must have been the uh, scene that kids would skip. Like when they would rewatch the movie. I had scenes like that. I always talk about the large Marge scene in Pee Wee. Oh, my God. I always hated that. That That scarred me. me. And near the end of stand by me when you see the body of the kid i always avoided that as well so it was funny that i didn't i always try to read the inquiries from the audience right before we do the show as i get it all together so it's not like infiltrating my brain and it's funny that i focused on that scene knowing that not knowing rather that many other people were focused on that scene as well because i was like wow this scene is pretty brutal it's funny because it's not bloody there's no blood in it it's just it's just concussive and tossy and all of that and I guess Raimi couldn't help himself, but it it was a little weird and out of place. What did you think of it? Dude, that is the scene I'm talking about remembering this movie for and being a little bit, yeah, being a little bit disturbed by it and remembering the film, the entire, the that scene had such a huge impact on me that I remembered the whole film that way, that the whole film was that way. And I remember it being such a tonal, a tonal shift from the first film but it's just that little one minute, two minute scene that is, of course, I find out later, a direct nod to the Evil Dead series and what Sam Raimi's is known for, his bread and butter and what put him on the map 
I love the fact on one hand that you could do that he could do that, that he could just go in and give you straight up Sam Raimi for what Sam Raimi is known for. In the middle of this movie that feels completely different, that that book ends it in completely different ways. At the same time, it's really it was kind of a bold choice because it really does take you out of the film. All of a sudden, it's lit different. It's colored different. The camera is much more dynamic all of a sudden. It's much more playful and cartoony. You have, you know, much more close up and tighter shots. You have the chainsaw. You have all the the reaction shots that are very comic book like with the the wide eyed reaction shots and all that kind of stuff. The the one doctor being pulled away and scraping the iron floor. Like it's really, it's, it, it feels like an evil dead movie. And again, I would say like, I'm not the biggest fan of the evil dead films and army of darkness because I'm just too much of a puss. You got to talk to PJ for that. That's, that's his wheelhouse. But I know I could, you know, I, I respect it because I know that's what Sam Raimi is known for. And I know that's what a lot of people come to the table for, for Sam Raimi. They love, I mean, talk about a cult following. I mean, those are huge films and everybody loves Sam Raimi for those, but I love the fact that they, it's kind of cool because they let him do that. And I think he got a lot of criticism after the first Spider-Man. I think a lot of people saw, saw the first Spidey as a little too sentimental why Sam Raimi, anybody could have directed that. I disagree. I think it's very cartoony and comic book-like. I love the wrestling scene in that film. We talked about that. But I think that was Sam Raimi reminding you, like, I'm still Sam Raimi. And I love that he could do that. He could have that whole stylistic presence and still be this filmmaker that could give you an adaptation of something and bring, you know, hit all the notes, not just make it his own thing. I think... That's a very rare trait in a filmmaker where you could kind of put your calling card and your own stamp on it and still do a serviceable thing to something you didn't create. Sam Raimi has nothing to do with Spider-Man besides these movies. So to be able to do both things, love and respect. I love it. It is cool, although, again, given the runtime, I would have loved that scene to have been used to explain why the arms were fundamentally evil. Because they, they kind of they talk about these arms are created. They can override him. He has this override ship that stops him from doing this, but why are they just sinister? And yes. I know that scene is kind of, I'm sure he explained to his, you know, to the powers that be the producers and stuff. The scene exists to show that the arms are kind of sentient and whatever, but they don't really explain like, why are they like that? What, what, what is it about them that makes him evil? They, they could have spent a little bit more time on that. It's true because they're fused to his nervous system. Right. So, so how do you explain that? Yeah. Like, why did you create this fundamentally evil thing? You know, right. Why did it fall down? This It's not like Skynet or something. I, I don't know. I I don't get it, but it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a comic book movie. I don't want to. Didn't they kind of remind you? I love the fact that, you know, you could have this computer generated effect with the tentacles and do all this bitch and stuff. And then they could also do the puppeted practical stuff, especially for the medium shots and the closer shots where you could kind of just bring them in and make them undulate and move a little bit in a subtle way. But you know what they remind me of, dude, still to this day, they remind me of the velociraptors in the first Jurassic park. I don't know what it is. Just the kind of the way they move and look around and there's some sort of intelligence there, even though they're creatures or robotic in many ways. I think the only thing you could have done, I was thinking about giving each one of the four of them a different personality. Like, here's the loose cannon. Here's the reluctant leader. This is the cut up and the goofster. And this is the, 
you know, the loner with the heart of gold, like whatever it is, like each one has a different, you know, personality, which could have been kind of a fun way to treat it. You know, this one doesn't want to really go along with the other three who are inherently evil, but he's the shrinking violet, whatever. (laughs) It is goofy, though. They don't really do. I understand like, oh, it's a scientist. He's got this experiment where he's going to provide the world with affordable power. Awesome. But after that, you kind of lose me a little bit. It's like, wait, but yeah. So then he has to create these hands and they or these arms that deal with it physically. And we're doing it in the middle of a laboratory. And I actually one of the funny things about this is like, how is he getting away with all of this shit? He's building this thing. They don't know where he is. They're not tracking or following him at all. Even the bank robbery scene. Well, I love that scene, by the way. I think that scene's dope. I don't know why there are so many bags full of gold coins in the bank, but it's super it's super cool. Very visual. And exciting, and I love how he has to like do what he has to do. The, in fact, I think his motivation makes a lot of sense in this movie when you really, when it really comes down to it. Like you understand beat for beat what he's trying to do. I love how when they say like go, when Franco's like go capture Spider Man, he basically just goes like right away. He's like fine, right? I go and go because he wants that stuff. trinium, man. Is trinium right. a real thing? I don't think so. No, okay, I don't think so. But the uh, the reality is is that he he has all this money but then has to buy all the stuff that he, so like who's manufacturing this stuff where is he getting it it's cool that he's building it all himself with his arms and i think that's really neat it makes a lot of sense but it, it did ask for a little bit of suspension of disbelief nonetheless i wanted to go through a couple other pieces of parts of my notes and then we can throw it over to you if you uh have anything sure. left you want to say there was that cool scene kind of early on during some chase um where there's a cop car suspended by by uh webbing as it's like flying through the air. And I don't know, because again, I try to watch these movies without rewinding so I can just view them without like too critical of an eye, but it looked great. And I was, and I was like, is that a real car? Like, did they actually suspend it like that? They might've, it looked pretty good. Um, So I wanted to give a shout out to that. I also wanted to shout out the Chinese woman with the violin. Oh, dude. So good. I had this thought, although I don't know if it's accurate. I think it might be a little too early for this, but, there's that woman. I assume she's Chinese. I mean, she could be some other Asian ethnicity. But then there is a explicitly Mandarin couple during the fire scene with the little girl. Yes. And she like helps him help Spider-Man climb up to the next thing. It's like so cute. But I was wondering about what you thought of the idea. Was this put in as one of those early? You know how there's like a Chinese character in a lot of these movies now or a lot of superhero movies or international movies like was this? something that was done for that reason do you think oh i hadn't thought of it that way before in order to broaden its appeal in other words yeah you know what i'm talking about like how there are like specific and people have examples especially in the later mcu movies and some of these international like blockbusters where there's like this character is a chinese actor that is big in china that plays this random character in this movie and it's there so that when we bring it to China, there's like something to draw people into. Dude, you I'm not, know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that this draws anyone in. What I'm saying was that like, was it just a little wink and a nod to an, a, an emerging audience that might be exposed to this film to have like, you know, a comical Asian character and then the couple that's speaking Mandarin to each other. I don't know. What, I, I, it's just something I thought because that's definitely happening now. I just don't know if that was happening then. You know what? This speaks to my ignorance on this. I never even knew about this. I never even knew about that dynamic. What you're saying makes complete sense to sell movies to international markets, especially China. That just sounds right. 
but I didn't, I wasn't aware of this. To me, it just felt like New York melting pot. I don't think they were even in Chinatown or anything like that. Just, you know, exploring, you know, you have Aziz, the pizza guy in the beginning. You have everybody of every different stripe, color, stripe, creed, religion on, on the subway. So it just felt like inherently like New York, just with the fire engines and the EMTs and the, and the people, the mix, the mix of people. But that's interesting. I wonder about that because that would be, if you're talking about superhero films, that would be a pretty early one to start developing that sort of philosophy or that mentality. That's really interesting. Yeah, like the I'm just looking it up now. Like the movie Shang Chi was definitely that's an MCU movie, and that was definitely made with the Chinese market in mind, um, at least primarily. It is Asian, of course, but right, they're definitely. I wish I had better examples to give you right off the bat, but yeah, like I, they actually made fun of, I think one of them in a, in a red letter media that I was watching where that's like, yeah, this is a Chinese actor put here for no purpose. That other is than... really interesting. Kind of a clever little strategy. I'm not sure how, fa- I mean, I guess that could be effective. Do you, but you know, what's odd about that? How many times have you seen a movie because an American actor was in it? Like who gives a fuck? Yeah. Like, no, you know I, what I mean, I, but I also think that that's true. But I also just think that we have. Oh, uh, well, that's true. As English Hollywood. Americans, you know, yeah. that's true. That's that's unfair for me to say. They that's often say like English true. is the language of the elite. So just that in, in and of itself is. I don't know. I, it, I guess they just have to look at it a little bit differently. That's a really but, good point. No, yeah. that's a, that's absolutely, absolutely true. I'm just thinking to myself, like when we had the rash of martial arts movies come out with crouching tiger hidden dragon and right, all these, right, right. you know hero and all these, I, I was you know i would rather see that than anything american so but not everybody's not everybody has those same kind of tastes and that is true i mean we're very you know as americans we're kind of spoiled by that especially when it comes down to language you're absolutely right i wanted to give a shout out when they show kind of like the when peter like the happy-go-lucky peter that lets go of being spider-man and he's doing all these things and he's succeeding I like had a belly laugh moment when he's fixing his bike and the wheel bounces and then bounces out the window. I like that. That for some reason just cracked me up. So I wanted to give a shout out to that uh, as well. And then finally, the only other thing I wanted to give a shout out to was the New York City parking lots. They show them a couple of times and it just gave me agita because for people that don't know, and I assume that they still do this, although I know they have a lot of like machines that lift cars and all sure. this now, but. I remember going into the, the New York City with dad when I was a kid and you'd sometimes park at these random corner lots or whatever, and they would just have to maneuver cars around each other like to get cars in and out. And I was like, what the f-? even as a kid, I was like, what the fuck is going on here? This is insanity. Yeah. Like Genuine. guys constantly just moving shit. To get one car out of the back and they'd kind of like be like, all right, do you have like some sort of anticipation of when you're going to come back for this thing? So they know like where to put it i just was wondering do you have any memories of those those last i assume the they Jenga. still exist although they have since they have like the lifting things now and all oh that. sure those lifting things are just as odd though because you still have to kind of rejigger and constantly reimagine how you're going to get everything and then like you said the departure time is important because they're not going to lift your car up to the tight the top rung of that thing if you're leaving in two hours because then they have to shift a million things around so i'm not sure how much those things i remember when the lifts were implemented by the time I started, I graduated from college and I started my career in New York, which was the late nineties, early two thousands. Those lifts were already, you know, implemented in most lots in midtown Manhattan. And it didn't seem like 
first of all, I hate it when they put my car up on one of those things because you're just like, these things are, so, they look like they're made of tin. Some of them, it's like, holy shit, how is that even holding my car? But I'm not sure how much, I mean, for capacity, for their, for their monetary uh, gain, I'm sure it was great because you could fit however many more times more cars in that lot. But that is interesting. And that does really smack of 2004 New York. Definitely. That's, the, that's definitely the era where you think about parking lots. And dad always had strange advantages because of the fire stickers, though. So he was probably pulling all, all sorts of parking stunts did that, in the did, lots back then, right? Did that tell you when he, um, it was probably like, I don't know, it was less, fewer than 10 years ago. Yeah. He had got some white pickup truck that he had for a while and he, it was in New York City and his brakes gave out and he drove from New York, from like Brooklyn all the way to his house on Long Island with, that just, is amazing. with just a handbrake, I guess. That is amazing. Yeah. No, he had a car. Apparently, when he was very young, he just started at the fire department, late 70s. Apparently, I think according to him and mom, he had a car that had no brakes for a while. He drove. He he would just coast. I guess he would know the traffic patterns. God forbid. I don't know how you know the traffic patterns from the middle of Long Island to Brooklyn. Far out Brooklyn, by the way. But And he would just use, you know, he would just coast and use the handbrake. And that was like a thing for like an entire summer so i don't think he was ever any stranger to that yeah it's so weird like because I, I remember him just telling me that story he's like yeah i just can't i didn't tell anyone because i didn't want anyone to worry but i just my brakes like you know went out sometime in brooklyn or queens and then i just kept going you know the entire Dude, way i have a nice car all-wheel drive perfectly fine vehicle for any drive i'm still horrified to drive on the on the jackie on the jackie robinson like i, I i'm horrified to drive on it so driving on the jackie robinson parkway with no brakes, yeah, you have to be some kind of crazy person or a hero or both things. Yeah, that's know? that's crazy. He's a hero too, but he's he's crazy. <laughs> he's out of when he came here. Life. When he came here two or three times ago, I got a new elliptical, so I had to get rid of my old one, and I was going to give it to Dana. And so it was like several hundred pounds. Like I moved it with oh, those the are heavy. That, the people that put it together like moved it into our garage, and we were just going to see if someone could take it. So Dad came down. And then he just went to my house when I was at Dana's and somehow got it into his truck by himself and then brought it to Dana's. And then we were supposed to do it together. And he just pulled up with it. And no I was like, way. Dad, I was like, Dad, how the fuck did you get this thing into the truck? He's like, oh, I figured it out. You know? Like, All right, Dad. Whatever that you is say. Amazing. That doesn't surprise me. But that is pretty. God. How far did the apple fall from the tree? Pretty far. Oh, I'll speak hey. for myself. I'll speak for you, too. Speaking of uh, speaking of New York, I did want to show. I guess this is a kind of a postscript for my notes, but I also noticed how there was exactly one Yankees hat and one Mets hat in the movie, as far as I can tell from characters. Oh. I don't know if you noticed that. Wow, I didn't yeah. notice this. Yankee on the hat, subway, er, Yankee hat earlier in the movie, and then the su- okay. on the subway, someone has a Mets hat on, like one of the characters that are standing around. They had to balance it. So I thought that that was interesting. I noticed that for sure. And then obviously they bring back Norman Osborn, mm. and he has a Wolverines like avenge me thing maybe the second most avenge popular avenge me in film history so is there anything that we've left unsaid is there anything you want to touch upon that we haven't talked about you know what i mean just the effects how well largely how well everything holds up i think sony pictures image works and maybe edge digital at that time i don't know if edge is still around but they did a pretty remarkable job it's it's amazing how this holds up almost two decades later 
And I like the balance between practical and digital. I know Sam Raimi has a very specific philosophy. You know, he came up as a young filmmaker, especially making those early horror films and everything. Just that whole mentality of doing it with a small budget, the problem solving sort of skills that that creates and having to come up with something in the moment, in time, with your limited amount of money and how, you know, he sort of embraced, I guess really starting with the first Spidey, he sort of embraced the CG technology and the animation and the visual effects, but at the same time sort of wanted to use the practical things. And I think I love still seeing the practical and all this. I lo- I want to see as much practical, for instance, Spidey as possible. And that sort of long shot, web slinging, really dynamic, camera moving in and out, Spidey carried over from the first film, now in the second film. You could see the evolution of technology only a couple of years, a few years later, which is kind of cool. He's a little less rubbery. He's a little more believable. I think the timing is a lot better. But there's a there's even a few moments in this film, not nothing too often or nothing too egregious, but there's a couple of rubbery CG Spider-Men that, that could have totally been either Toby or a stuntman and done practically. And I don't know why they chose to do it. There's one really egregious scene you guys could check out. Maybe the the worst one in the film. There's not too many again. Where Doc Ock has Aunt May and he's climbing the building. And Peter, there's a lot of Dragon Ball Z knocking. And he's tossing her around. and he, she, He's tossing her everywhere. That's really 2004, like, the CG mixed with the compositive, the compositing, the live action compositing is really where you could see the smoke and mirrors. I agree. That's really where you could see the strengths. Definitely. And that's a, that, that definitely speaks to, you know, the early aughts. But there's one scene where Peter San Goku is knocked through a building and knocked through another building. And he kind of, he jumps out of the hole of the building and he's kind of just braces himself in the, in the doorway there's no reason for that to be CG and it's a very rubbery CG where it's just it's just moving too much. Those are the only choices where I'm like why couldn't they just do that practical? Everybody wants to see Spidey. Right. And everybody wants to see a realistic Spidey. So I was surprised to see Raimi do a little too much CG in this and again maybe that's pressure from Sony from the movie studio or whatever. But he really does have this philosophy of lamenting too much CG because again, he says it kind of strips you of your inventiveness when you have too many tools at your disposal. You don't really, you kind of lose that problem solving ability where how can we do this and make it look right? And how could, you know, what's the best method on the cheap and let's really put our brains together and figure out the best way to do this where when you're doing it inside the box, when you're doing it inside the computer and you're you're just throwing the CG at it, it's not always the it's not always the most creative way to go. So I and I know that's really his outlook. So I was kind of surprised to see a little too much CG in this. Not super surprised because I think they feel like that's what audiences wanted to see in 2004, right? But oh, certainly, I would have liked to seen it handled a little more practically. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff you can't do practical. But, you know, that's that's one of those things. It was like, put a little more practical in there. And then you said the humor. That that scene with the with the moped tire going out the window. Sam Raimi has a very specific 
comedic flavor to his things. There's another scene that I remember. I love that one scene you mentioned. There's another one where Peter's losing his power mid-flight and he kind of falls really dramatically against the building and then slams on a couple of cars on the way down and he's walking away, rubbing his back. And then right when you think it's going to cut, the car alarm goes off. You know, it's those little comedic touches in the timing that, you know, it's it's not the CG that I'm talking about. It's those little comedic touches in the timing that make it memorable that we're discussing right now. And those moments are really important, you know, and I, I hate to see them lost because they're so overruled by this mentality of like, let's get as much of the computer into this as humanly possible, you know. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned earlier that they do not do a nice balance with Doc Ock with like some of the practical arm stuff. They do a nice. I love the 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 o the or scene is funny just because they have like the blue and this is where the comic stuff co- kind of comes in where they have like the blue covering over all of his arms like that they would put over a body. So, so good. And, so there is like stuff that I'm like, is that supposed to be funny or isn't it? There's stuff I was just showing Micah because uh, you know one of my uh, both of our touchstones I think for movie comedy is um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh sure. And I was talking about how much I love the Augustus Glute dinner scene or the lunch scene when they go and and the guy is immediately standing in front of the antlers. And I'm like, what's funny about that is like, did they? I I think I think about that because I'm like, first of all, most people probably don't even notice it. And then I'm I think about it, I'm like, did they? do that on purpose and immediately or did they film something and be like oh my god this is hysterical i mean they obviously did do it on purpose but did they arrive at that point sure with that humor in the moment and i wondered that with stuff like putting the blue thing over the arms so i was like that's just funny a lot of people probably won't even notice that that's funny but it is funny so i agree that there are a lot of nice little touches and i just want to reiterate that i think spider-man without his mask on is just a dope look oh it's so you got to look for as many excuses to do that as possible and as far as like kind of putting the the compositing with real and fake, it kind of that that famous train scene when he's stopping the train, and I love that scene because it's like you think it's going to resolve many different times, and it just doesn't. And like it seems like it's going to stop. He's putting his feet down onto the the wood pieces, then he's using some of the web, and it just keeps failing over and over again. But the people's reactions to what's going on are not always commensurate to what is happening. Like they don't look horrified enough or they're not looking in the right place and all that kind of stuff. So that gets a little awkward too. But this was, this was at a time when I, I, when things were different and I must say, I mean, we've said it, I think this movie largely holds up very well. Uh, It does. It's certainly in no way egregious in almost any way. Like I said, I think that opening shot with MJ on the billboard is the worst shot. I, I couldn't believe, I was like, why isn't that a real billboard? Why the fuck isn't that a real billboard that you put up in film? I don't, I don't understand that. But okay, whatever you want to do. I want to end with this message from Brandon. Yo, Brandon. Because I want to talk about this as we as we close it out. Sure. On a more philosophical level, he says, hey, Spider Bros. Spider-Man 2 is my favorite movie of all time, and it's had a huge impact on me wow. through the years. I think that it perfectly encapsulates what makes the character special. Of course, Spider-Man's central theme, is, theme has always been with great power comes great responsibility, but this movie focuses on what that really means. Peter tries to give up being a superhero, but he quickly learns that the powers were never his to give away. They're not a gift for him. They're a gift for everyone else. I think it's a message that can be applied to all of us. We all have the ability to do good for others in some way, and it's our responsibility to do those things, even when it's in detriment of our own lives, not just when it's convenient to. See, this is, I know that that's the message for Spider-Man, but I find that so unfair to Spider-Man. That's why I really like 
in the gaming universe, which I'm most familiar with, with Spider-Man, Miles Morales coming in as hopefully relief for the real Spider-Man who doesn't have to like do this anymore or doesn't have to be the guy that they rely on. I personally think, although I understand Uncle Ben's message of like, you know, with great power comes with great responsibility and look what happened to me when you, although he didn't know at the time when you did the wrong thing. And that's what makes that Aunt May scene so powerful when she takes her hand away. Although it's like, come on, man, like, what did you want him to do? Like, it's almost like, you know, in the first film when he doesn't stop the guy from robbing them. But I find it fucked up that just like this innocent, sciencey, nerdy photographer gets bit by a spider in this random happenstance. And now his life is forced into this life. And I don't think that the movie satisfactorily really deals with it. And I think that that's kind of intentional. Like, I'm not satisfied with Brandon's me- argument, no offense, uh, which is a lot of people's argument of saying, like, it's your responsibility now to do this. I think Batman feels the same way in his stuff, too, for different reasons. And it's like, well, no. And I like when Peter walks away from the guy getting jumped in the alley because it's like, well, why is everything your problem? That right. You see that in the pizza when he's delivering the pizza and how much he sacrifices. And he's late specifically because of his sacrificial nature. He's late and then he loses his job and this all falls apart. And it's like, why wouldn't his life be more important than that? I think it's so fucked up to just look at this guy and be like, yeah, Spider-Man, just throw yourself at all issues. You got fired from your job. You're late to class and losing out on your academic skills and you're messing up your relationships and you're messing up your friendships. And but we need this Spider-Man. It's like, I I, I don't know. He's like, what is he like 19? I I just. Yeah. I'm troubled by that message, although I do think that that message is at the center of it all. It's like, no, you don't owe anyone anything. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it really says that you must use your talents or your your powers. And that's your responsibility. You know, whatever you're born with or in, in Peter's case whatever you inherit, whatever power you inherit, it's your, it's your kind of, you're beholden, you're tasked. You must use that power for the greater good. Here's the interesting thing about Spider-Man 2, though. The Spidey abilities, being Spider-Man is something that Peter is not born with. He inherits that. But what he learns from this villain, what he learns from Doc Ock, is that your, what your responsibility is as a human is to use the gifts that you're born with. In this case, that would be Peter's intelligence. Like Dr. Octavius, if that was the outlook, then Peter would be beholden to use his intelligence, which is the power that he's born with. Now he's got a choice between not only that, but he's got a choice between being bit by this radioactive spider. Now he's got a choice between the gift that he was born with and the gift that he inherited. That even complicates things even more. I like... The idea of a superhero having to choose and having to sacrifice, I think that's that makes for good drama and that makes for a grounded story about a superhero. But it is a little bit unfair, right? If you think about it to Peter, because at least the way he looks at it as a young man is that this is going to rob him of everything he initially wanted and also all of the pleasures in life, friendships, a life college his actual academic pursuits a romance you know eventually a relationship and a family so it is very interesting and i think if you take uncle ben out of the equation i think i think peter's kind of he's got two hooks in him i think he's got his inherent 
sort of nobility and kindness. And I think he's got the loss of his uncle, which is really guilt because he, in a way, caused it. The one time he kind of ran afoul of his emotions and got angry and let that guy, let that criminal get by him, he essentially caused the death of his uncle. And because of what his uncle always tried to instill, right, he's trying to serve his, you know, he's trying to serve that master. Now, what if Uncle Ben was always on about something completely different? You know what I mean? What if Uncle Ben was always on about, I don't know, recycling? Or something? <laughs> <laughs> Very passionate about the environment. Right. Then Peter would be, you know, then he would be kind of sort of always plagued by having to carry out that legacy. <laughs> and he becomes Captain Planet. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting, right? It, it, you kind of got to suspend your disbelief and just, they also may, we'll definitely, we're definitely going to jump into Spider-Man 3 and the, the last of the Raimi trilogy and it's a really divisive one, which is why I'm really looking forward to you seeing it. But they may even go into this a little more. And, you know, of course, you can just watch the trailers and know you get black suit Spidey and all of that. And a different, a really a different level of villain or villains in that in that film. But, you know, it th- this is a yeah, this one is really sort of a snapshot in time for me. It really does speak to 2004. But I guess it was fashion forward enough. That it holds up surprisingly well. I'm I'm really glad you picked it, and uh, I'm well. Again, the audience the audience voted for it. I didn't pick it. That's right. This is an audience voted topic. Glad it made the docket. I'll take the I'll take the credit, but I I don't take the credit, my friend. You know, I'm so pleased that Disney, in their wisdom, and sometimes they do really cool things. I mean, look at Disney Visions, right, with Star Wars. I'm really sort of pleased that they tapped Sam Raimi to do this Doctor Strange film that just came out yesterday because I think Sam Raimi is a really underrated director because I think again I think he has both of those things he has that stylistic flavor that's very Sam Raimi and only Sam Raimi and then he could but he could do a proper film he he has all the tools and he has really all that he has a very broad skill set and doing a doing a proper superhero movie. And I, I think Dr. Strange looks really cool. Have you seen the trailers? No, I haven't. I, I try to avoid all MCU trailers because I'm so far impossibly behind. I don't even know who any of these people are. So that's I'm true. To, I'm trying to go one at a time. I'm, but we're, we have to do Iron Man two next. That's the next one. We have to do. <laughs> Which we should, did, we should, what, we should move. When did Iron Man one come out? 2008. Wow. So this is way before. So this is way before Robert Downey Jr. You know, took on the mask as Iron Man and be kind of became that character. So yeah, you got, you got to really give a nod to Tobey Maguire. With yeah. He's great, man. And I'm, so I'm and speaking of Raimi coming back again, I just want, I'll say like, I I'm glad that these guys were able to kind of get a shine in the MCU because you have to wonder, like, mm. was it cool for Albert Molina to get a call and be like, Hey man, we want you to come and like reprise your role just for a minute in our new film. Cause I wonder if some of these guys look at it and think, and I, w- I would is like, this this MCU especially happened right after we were done. And if only in a different time, we would have been part of this pantheon that I would imagine, like if they came to me and I was an actor and they were like, you want to play fucking Captain Poop Pants and, you know, in Marvel 
ultimate you know three or whatever and i'd be like okay cool like i'm gonna be captain poop pants forever now and in the marvel universe and i i i wonder if now they kind of get their little shine like they're acknowledged in this i think that's and i think it's awesome yeah plus you get that disney money do what you want alfred molina wants to go back and do something off broadway get a little bit of that disney scratch then you could go do what you want to do artistically or whatever so i and you know jake gyllenhaal his name, he got to come back and re, and and be a, a part in the Spider-Man movie with I think he he ended up playing Mysterio right in Far From Home, so that was kind of cool too that that came full circle. So it's it's kind of neat, you know. I I always wonder where Spider-Man's going to go next. Well, hopefully they and cast me as know. the Shocker. I'm a, they cast me as the Shocker. I'll play a, I'll play the Shocker very well. Yeah, Shocker's never been done on screen. I don't think so. We had Vulture. We had right. Was, was there a lot? Was there We did have Rhino, I think. Live action shocker Spider Man. Oh no, he's in Spider Man Homecoming. Oh, so he is. Oh shit! So I guess someone him? already. I guess someone already played him. Oh, he looks cool. Yeah, this is perfect. Yeah, I gotta see. I gotta see the two. Yeah, he's just got like Spider-Man. these metallic arms and just like his white, these yellow like suit. Oh, I remember from the trailer. Yes, that's true. That's a dope did character. They, the the 90s Spider-Man animated film, did they ever have... Who's the big, the huge Juggernaut? There was ju- Juggernaut. Did Juggernaut ever pop up in those animated... In the X-Men? Let's see, Juggernaut. In the, X-Men, in the X-Men series, yeah. Live action. He must have. Yeah, he did. Here he is. 2006. Oh, that's right. He was surprisingly tiny, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's just a dude in a suit, I think. Yeah, it wasn't. It was. I always game. loved him at, in the 90s cartoon. It's just that brown, orange-ish... You know, like he had like the the bolts in his helmet. Oh, the iconic outfit. Yeah, that's the one I like to see. Absolutely, that's good stuff. I like the Colossus from that era as well. Mm. All right, I think that's it. Dig, I think that's all we have for this episode of Knockback. Thank you all for your kindness and your support of our show and all things Last Stand Media on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/LastStandMedia. If you listen to us on podcast feeds, please consider leaving us a nice review on iTunes and elsewhere, and of course, watch us on YouTube if you prefer as well, like some of you do. All right, Dave, let's end as we always do with a dad joke. Take All right, away. my friends. Thank you for putting up with my slight rasp today. I think it'll be better next time. Um, okay, I got a good one. Got a good one here today from Joel. I'm not going to read Joel's last name because I'm not sure he wanted me to. Okay. Little Instagram DM came at me with this one last week. I liked it. From Joel. Kyle, what do you call a mishap at a lizard convention? I don't know. A reptile dysfunction. (laughs) (laughs) So good. That's good. Good That's good stuff. Yeah, that's great. Well done. Well done. I'll pretend it's Joel from The Last of Us. Because he would be privy to some dad jokes because Ellie loved dad jokes and she would read them to Joel when they were on their adventures. There you go. go. All right, Dig. Let's get the hell out of here. Thank you all for your love, kindness, and support. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity.
Casual Misfits Gaming, Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vaders, Tom Quinn, Stephen Interfield, Forkboy Gaming, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Fucking Mayo, Logan Byford, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Knox, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Jonas Young, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Catch, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Chris Christian R, Jad Rita, Benjamin Muma, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Hallen Rui, Tyler Watkins, Michael Buffel, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Halsey, Nuke Dukem, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H Trons, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Jordan Gale of Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Flowers, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ali Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, Dallar Rodriguez, Damon W., Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algaret, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrew. Check Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinniston, The Rose Experience, and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Joey Gonhalliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Brent Linquist, David I. Colucci, Paul Joyce, Passive Pixels, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Garson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, and Jonathan Rice. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.